Greetings, friends. It is the week, or excuse me, the weekend of Sunday, May the 30th. And we continue looking at the book of Hebrews today, looking at chapter 6, verse 13 through chapter 7, verse 3. In our last study of Hebrews, chapter 6, we it revealed this really sobering possibility. You know, we may look back on our, our conversion experience, which was accompanied with, with joy, with perhaps a release, certainly forgiveness. It, it, it could have been 20, 30 years ago, whatever. But the opening verses of chapter 6 make clear that if there isn't a permanent change in our life today as a result of that conversion experience, then we've really only been kidding ourselves. Despite whatever activities we've been doing, religious activities we've been doing faithfully, uh, if we are still the same person in our disposition and attitude, our, if our reactions to other people are the same, then that they used to be, then we're not believers. We're still without life. The unmistakable sign of a true Christian, of a believer, is a life that is the, uh, is the existence of a love that desires to help others, that seeks to minister to others, no matter the cost to, the, to self. If that love is present, even, even if it's a small degree, it is proof that we are truly followers of Jesus. But we can have that without a sense of assurance or security in this relationship. It is very possible to be a Christian and, and to still be troubled with doubts and fears, anxieties, and certainly uncertainties about our relationship to Jesus. And, and that's where we're going to start today. And, and I'd like to let this climate of doubt be the launching pad for the rocket of faith, which is always the answer to doubt. The writer of Hebrews cites examples of Abraham, one of the great rocket launchers of all history, the man called in the New Testament, the father of the faithful. That's chapter four of Romans. To exercise the kind of faith Abraham exercised is to become children of Abraham and heirs of his promises. This incident from the life of Abraham shows us what makes faith strong. And here we learn the the, the reason for faith, for the ground of our hope, Looking, reading from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, the certainty of God's promise. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no, no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms that what is said and, and, and puts an end to all argument. And because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Genesis records that God appeared to Abraham and made him a promise. Through, all your, through your seed, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 15 and also in, 20, chapter, in uh, chapter 22. The immediate 
seed was Isaac, born of Abraham's old age, but the ultimate seed is Christ. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that the promise, this promise is fulfilled and all the peoples of the earth are blessed in Abraham. This promise was later confirmed by an oath, God swearing by himself that he would fulfill what he said. And the writer of Hebrews is simply pointing out that Abraham believed God's promise and his oath. Why did he believe it? Not because he immediately saw it fulfilled. There were 25 long, weary years before Isaac was born. And in the meantime, Abraham and his wife Sarah were growing older and had passed the time of life when it was possible to have children. Still, the promise was unfulfilled, and and Abraham did not believe it because he saw immediate results. Nor did he believe because he was doing his best to accomplish it. There was one reason when he began to waver in faith and thought he had to help God out. You see, he concocted an ingenious scheme to fulfill the promise of God, and and the result was the birth of Ishmael, who became a thorn in the side of Israel from that day to this. Then why did Abraham believe God's promise? Well, let's read from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 4, where he writes of Abraham. So Romans chapter 4, 19 through 21, reads like this. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. God was able. Abraham's faith rested on the character of God, and that is always where faith must in fact rest. As the writer points out, this is also true among men. A person's word is no better than their character. Even if you get a person to sign a contract or an agreement, Well, that agreement is no more than just a scrap sheet of paper if the person who signed it does not intend to fulfill it. It is no better than the person who makes it. Even in our courts of law and affairs of business, this is is true. All faith ultimately rests on character. And Abraham believed that God told the truth about himself. And God was true to his own character, which he had expressed in a couple of ways, at least two separate ways. First of all, the promise, and second, the oath by which he swore to fulfill that promise. Without seeing any results, for 25 years, Abraham hung on to the character of God. He never said to himself during that time, I've tried it, it doesn't work. Or, hey, I've got to convince myself that this is true, even though I secretly believe that it's not. He, he said, the God I know exists is the kind of God who will do what he says he'll do. And for 25 years, Abraham hung on to that promise. Have we ever said, if I see it, then I'll believe it? No greater lie was ever hung on the human race by the father of lies than this. That the lie is seeing is believing. We are utterly convinced that this is the way to come to some kind of knowledge of truth. But the man who sees no longer needs to believe. Faith is not sight, nor is sight faith. 
We may ask, why believe in prayer? Well, not because I have tried it and it has worked. I believe in prayer because Jesus Christ says that prayer is the secret of life, and I believe him. Jesus Christ says that we must either pray or faint, one or the other, that we either find the keystone to life in prayer or lacking it begin begins to come apart at the seams, life that is. Because it is Jesus Christ who says this, we believe him and, and therefore we pray and find it works. For it is it is the secret. He, he has been telling the truth. The proof of prayer does not come from our experience. That is simply the demonstration of what we have already believed. And we believe it because of who said it. Believing, therefore, is seeing. That is the true statement. This is true on, on lots of levels of life. Albert Einstein did not come to the knowledge of relativity by performing a series of experiments which ultimately convinced him that relativity was true. He gradually saw the concept of relativity and convinced in his own mind that this was the secret of the physical universe. He performed experiments that he might demonstrate it to others. This is the way of truth. Believing is seeing. This then is the secret of faith. It rests on the character of Jesus Christ. Either he is telling us the truth and we can trust what this one who is like no uh, no one else who ever appeared in human history says to us or we have to reject him, repudiate him as as self-deceived as an imposter, as someone who attempted to place some some crazy idea on the human race and and that's where faith rests. From the ground everything else has to follow. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner. It is in the person of Jesus that all Christian faith rests and lasts. He is our forerunner. Not only has he made promises, but he has himself demonstrated them. What has happened to him is what will happen to us. Now, if this is true, then our faith will be strengthened as we see more clearly the character of one with whom we have to deal. This is why the author of Hebrews moves immediately to the matter of the high priesthood of Melchizedek. Again and again in this letter, he, he is, the, the writer has used this phrase, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The sheer repetition of, repetition of it indi- indicates that there's got to be something vital here, right? So now we'll see what it is. In the next section, section from chapter 7, verses 1 through verse 26, we have this portrait of our helper. And the incident on which it is based comes from, again, from Abraham's life, recorded in the 14th chapter of Genesis, the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. As Abraham was returning from battle with with the five kings, a, a stranger met him and blessed him. And Abraham gave tithes to this man. And Melchizedek steps suddenly out of the shadows of of, of history to appear on the stage of scripture. And, and perhaps it's helpful to, to understand this if we view this incident almost like a movie, which is depicting the life of Christ. So Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, Melchizedek the priest. This Melchizedek was the king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. 
Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. So without father or mother, without genealogy, without being of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So it's like a movie in where there's a well-known star plays the part of, of a historical character. The, the account of Genesis is that kind of a scene. Here's an ordinary man named Achilzedek, a priest of the true God who lived in the village of Salem, which would be later known as Jerusalem, who met Abraham returning from battle. And for the moment, he's fulfilling a role which, which really beautifully pictures the ministry of Jesus to us today. So, so let's look more carefully at this passage to see the meaning of this ministry of Jesus. First, by comparison with Melchizedek. Well, the word of reciprocity in these first couple verses, Melchizedek met Abraham and gave him bread and wine, which are symbols of life and strength. The very things that we partake of when we come to the Lord's table. Abraham, in turn, gave tithes of everything he possessed to Melchizedek. Now, the tithe, or tenth, is always the mark of ownership. To pay a tenth is to indicate that God owns the whole. So, symbolically, Abraham was saying to Melchizedek, the one whom you depict has the right of ownership over everything in my life. And in this movie of the ministry of Jesus, we we see enacted a very important principle. Abraham and Melchizedek became available to each other. The provision of strength from Melchizedek exactly equaled the degree of commitment on the part of Abraham. That's what the New Testament says to us. We may exercise dominion to the same degree we are prepared to submit to the dominion of Jesus Christ in our own heart. We can fulfill our God-given right as man to rule over what we survey, what we can see, to the same degree we are prepared to recognize the kingship of Jesus in our own life. We can have as much of Christ as, in turn, we are ready to permit him to have of us. Then there is this word of authority here. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. What is it that Jesus can give us today? What does he present what is what does his present ministry make possible in our life right now? He can give us only what he is. That's all. It takes Christ to be a Christian. We need what he is what he is in order to be what he was and what he is is revealed in his names. First of all, the king of righteousness. Example, he is the one who has the secret of right conduct, the principle, the divine program, which results in proper behavior. He is the king of that. He controls it, but he is also the king of peace. So not not a stretch, but let's use an equivalent modern term for that phrase, for what it means here. It's not the absence, it's not talking about warfare. It's, a, it's an internal piece. So, so, so a phrase that we could use that means the same thing is actually mental health. He is the king of mental health. He is the king of peace. He holds in his hand the secret of rest and of inner calm, of that adequacy 
within, which gives us poise, which power and purpose to human life. This is, this is so desperately, desperately being sought today, is it not? People say that they have to live their truth. That's a phrase that's used today. Because people are dying to know the secret of rest and inner calm. Then there's a word of continuity here. He is without father or mother or genealogy and has neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. In the movie of Melchizedek that, that we're looking at here, the, all this verse means is that there is no mention made of Melchizedek's ancestry, his pedigree, no record of, of his birth or his death. He was, perfectly nor- he was a perfectly normal man. All these things were true of him. But the silence of the record is taken as an illustration of the eternal, changeless, unending priesthood of Jesus. This means he is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, throughout every year of a whole lifetime. Someone could ask us, hey, how much time do you spend with the Lord each day? And we could answer. We could answer. 24 hours. How about you? And then they'd say, oh, no, what I mean is, how much time do you have for your quiet time? You know, that every day, that quiet time where you're journaling every morning, your time with the Lord. Well, we could say, I do try to have a quiet time in the morning of some kind. Sometimes I miss that. But it doesn't mean that I haven't had time with Jesus. I haven't had time with the Lord. You see, I have discovered from the New Testament that I have time with him 24 hours a day. I am never out of his presence. I am never shut off from his resources. I am never separated from his wisdom or his peace or his truth. This is what the Melchizedek priesthood means and what the world is so incredibly hungering after today. We're going to stop here today and we'll pick back up next week with con- with a contrast of Jesus's ministry with the, the Levitical priesthood. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a good week.